You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Source Science listeners, my name is Liz Mahood and I'll be your host for this episode. In today's episode, we're interviewing two researchers who study cancer at the cellular level. Cellular biology is at the heart of cancer, since cancer is just cells gone haywire. We all have cells, and so does every living thing, but why do some cells turn cancerous? Many biologists are trying to answer that question. Today, you'll hear from two researchers who address it in different ways. In our first interview, Esther Rakusen interviews Cornell professor Dr. Ming-Ming Wu, who studies how breast cancer cells move inside the body. In our second segment, Esther interviews Cornell professor Dr. Marcos Simois Costa, who studies neural crest cells. These cells are only around in developing embryos, yet Dr. Simois Costa has found that they have a distinct similarity to metastatic cancer cells. First up, here's Esther with Dr. Ming-Ming Wu. I'm Esther Rakusen for Locally Sourced Science. I recently spoke with Dr. Ming-Ming Wu, Professor of Biological and Environmental Engineering in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Dr. Wu uses engineering and physics principles to understand biological processes. She is interested in the forces that are exerted on cells or by cells when they move inside the body. In January of this year, Dr. Wu and colleagues published a study exploring how breast cancer tumor cells move inside the body. The group created a device that could be used to study how breast cancer cells respond to the presence of a chemokine, a hormone released by lymph node immune cells that can attract tumor cells in the body. Here, Dr. Wu describes how she created the microfluidic device and how it works. We make device which we call microfluidic device, which is a micrometer in scale. So one micron is like a hundredth of your hair width. So they're they're very small, but they're not small for the cells. So cells sort of are at a similar magnitude in length scale with these device. So the advantage is we can control the environment really well. We can also um, imaging them. So this allowed us to do a very precise experiment in the sense we can uh, provide very well-defined chemical gradients and, and we can change them and we can see how the cells respond to it quantitatively. To do their experiments, Dr. Wu's group suspended cells in a solution of collagen. This is a protein that produces a support for cells that mimics the environment that they might experience inside tissues in the body. Here, she describes the idea behind this. So, so, so collagen matrix basically is, um, is the architecture of our tissue. So that, that's how we make our tissue stiff. 
And so we uh, we uh, resuspend them into reconstitute them in 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 our device. So the cells basically have an environment that's similar, but not exactly same, but closer than uh, uh, let's say surface of the petri dish, which is typically these experiments were done before. Uh, so so it provides a more three dimensional structure for the cells. After the cells are suspended in collagen, they are put into the microfluidic device. They are then exposed to a gradient of chemokine. A gradient creates a gradually increasing concentration of the chemokine for the cells to be exposed to. Then the scientists observe the cells to see what they do. Here, Dr. Ru talks about chemokines and why they were used in their study. Chemokines are things that are secreted by immune cells. And uh, uh, so CCL19 is a very potent chemokine that secretes in lymph nodes. And uh, uh, so for breast cancer metastasis, the first stop typically is in lymph nodes. So, and also immune cells are very good at getting into lymph nodes when something is wrong with your body. So people understand um, how immune cells get to the lymph nodes because they, they are responding to this chemokine. And uh, so there is, before us, there is a study in Germany. Um, they looked at uh, 15, 16 malignant breast tumor cell line, and they looked at all the uh, receptors uh, um, that's responding to uh, chemokines. Uh, they find that there are three uh, receptors that's highly expressed on the malignant tumor cell. A breast tumor cell. And one of them is called CCR7, which is the receptor to the CCL19 that we study. So this is the reason that we decided to look at CCL19, whether tumor cells also respond to it. We use a cell line, which is immortalized a long time ago from a, a human uh, cancer patient. If you look at the same population of uh, breast cancer cells, especially the one we look at, they look all different. Some of them are elongated, some of them are rounded, and some of them have like um, a skirt fanning out. So they all move differently, they look differently. How do the differences between cells translate into the behavior of the cells? And what determines whether breast cancer cells stay in one area or spread to other areas? So the, uh, I'll an- answer the second question first. I, I think that's the most uh, uh, sort of intriguing question for us, uh, which is, you know, why some cells decide to stay, some cells decide to, to leave the primary cells. In general, if the cells don't go anywhere, stay in the primary tumor, then it's not lethal. The the problem comes when they uh, get away from primary tumor and uh, especially go into blood vessel, then they take a highway and go into a secondary organ 
and establish a new tumor, and that's what we call metastasis, which is the lethal part of, of a cancer cell. So a lot of our work is, in fact, to try to understand um, how the cancer cells decide to move, if they move, how could they manage to go from one place to the other? Because it's, it's not that trivial, because cells in general move very slowly. And uh, um, so the question of how could they actually manage to overcome so, so many barriers to, to reach to destination is, is the, the main question we, uh, we, we try to understand. So the breast cancer cell line that Dr. Wu used in her studies has a receptor called CCR7 that binds the chemokine CCL19. They then decided to put the tumor cells in their microfluidic chambers and added the chemokines to the chambers. This is what they observed. We uh, tried to repeat this experiment with tumor cells. And what we found is they don't do what immune cell does, which is like very quickly respond to it. What what we find is they still do their random walk. Um, However, we find that uh, they move faster and also they change their shape and the way of moving and they, they... they have uh, the the population becomes more diversified. There are some fast movers, slow mover. So we thought maybe chemotaxis, which is the response to the chemical gradient, uh, may not be the the uh, the reason that the tumor cells go to lymph nodes. Maybe it's the heterogeneity that the fact that they become more diversified, uh, such that. Uh, some, like a small population of some were landing in the lymph nodes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm speaking with Dr. Mingming Wu, Professor of Biological and Environmental Engineering in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. She's talking about her recent study of how breast cancer cells move in response to chemokines. Dr. Wu and colleagues noticed that, whereas most immune cells that they tested responded to the chemokine by moving quickly, the tumor cells acted differently. They saw that just a few cells move quickly in response to the chemokine. Those cells that move quickly also change their shape. This response of the tumor cells revealed what she calls heterogeneity in the cell population. So you can look at one cell at a time. Yes. Yes, that's the key issue. We follow, we can follow a cell for like days. The cells are confined in this microfluidic channel, and the, the field of view sort of seeing the whole channel. So they typically within a day, thirty six hours is sort of the typical imaging time for our experiment. So within the imaging time, they typically don't go out of field of view, but sometimes they do. So so what we do is we track a lot of cells and then build up statistics from that. The important thing is some cells move very fast, but, but there are very few of these. Like say if we track 100 cells, typically one or two. So the question is, uh, 
Uh, first of all, these one or two very fast movers are very important for our study because um, if one cell escaped and went somewhere, build a new tumor, that's it. So, however, because of this small number of cells, uh, it is very hard to build up uh, statistics. Uh, so this is sort of where the challenge comes from, how to statistically um, quantify a rare event. Dr. Wu set up a collaboration with another scientist who studies rare events. Dr. Anders Ridd is a particle physicist at Cornell who searches for super rare matter particles such as quarks. Dr. Reed had been using a statistical analysis called a Levy distribution analysis that Dr. Wu thought would be well-suited to the analysis of the tumor cells that her lab was studying. I asked Dr. Wu what she and her colleagues think about their results. Why does she think that about 1-2% to of the cells they studied change their shape and move quickly in response to the chemokine? I think they have, at the genetic level, they have a different, uh, different genetic makeup. So it would be really interesting to isolate these cells and uh, sequence them to see what exactly is different from this, this fast mover than the other cell. So, yeah, so we have been discussing with our biology collaborator to look at single cell sequencing to look at the, 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 what happened to this particular cell. Finally, I asked her what kinds of experiments she and her colleagues are planning for the future. So we are, we are doing a lot of force measurement. So before we uh, measured single cell force, and now we would like to look at how a tumor as a, as a tumor, because uh, as a spheroid, that how, how they generate force and go to places. To learn more about the recent study by Dr. Wu and colleagues, you can read the paper. It is published in the journal Integrative Biology, the January 2020 edition. We'll post the information on our website. For locally sourced science, I'm Esther Rakusin. If you're just tuning in, you heard Esther Rakusin interview Dr. Ming Ming Wu. Dr. Wu's lab developed a system to study metastatic breast cancer cells and discovered that there was surprising variability in the movement of these cells. Next up, Esther interviews Dr. Simois Costa, who studies the developmental fate of neural crest cells in the chicken embryo. He and colleagues discovered that when neural crest cells migrate, they produce high levels of certain enzymes, a pattern that is also found in metastatic cancer cells. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. Spring has finally arrived in Ithaca, and a very prominent symbol of spring is the egg. Developmental biology is the science of how an egg, a single cell, starts dividing and developing into a multicellular embryo and then into an adult organism. 
What are the specific steps that cause cells to divide and change and move or migrate to new locations? I recently spoke with Cornell developmental biologist, Dr. Marcos Simois Costa. He studies a specific group of cells in the developing vertebrate embryo called neural crest cells. Last year, Dr. Simois Costa, a PhD student in his lab, Debadrita Bhattacharya, and postdoc Ana Paula Azambuja published a paper describing some exciting observations about neural crest cells. They found that the metabolic activity of neural crest cells changes dramatically before they migrate to new locations in the developing embryo. In fact, the scientists found fascinating similarities between the metabolic activity of neural crest cells and metastatic cancer cells. To find out more, I spoke with Dr. Simois Costa. He started out by describing neural crest cells. My laboratory studied this uh, neural crest cells, which are stem cell population in the embryo. That is very interesting because they are both multipotent, meaning that they can give rise to multiple cells, uh, but they're also migratory. So they can move around the, the embryo as it develops. And the cells are formed within the central nervous system from where they leave and undergo this really complex process of migration and contribute to multiple tissues and organs. So we're trying to understand what makes the cells uh, so plastic and, and what makes them able to give rise to all these different cell types and, and also what controls their movement. Can you talk about the system that you use to study the neural crest cells? Yeah, so we uh, tend to favor uh, the chicken embryo as a model. So this is a very classic model to study uh, developmental biology and how embryos form. Actually, you know, Aristotle, who was one of the first developmental biologists, that was the, the way that he uh, chose to look at development. So he would open, you know, little windows in eggs of, of um, developing chicken embryos and observe the changes that were taking uh, place inside of the egg, right? So uh, we're co-opting that same very classic system uh, to do molecular biology. When you're studying the neural crest cells, how do you follow them as they are moving? We have an array of uh, molecular biology techniques that allows us to label the cells and make them fluorescent. So we can generate transgenic embryos uh, by injecting embryos with, with DNA that will then uh, tag the cells and then we can use microscopy to see the cells moving around the embryo uh, during development. So we mostly use green fluorescent protein, which you know is a, is a gene that has been cloned from a fluorescent jellyfish that we can harness mm -hmm. uh, and, and make that gene be turned on in our cells specifically. You know, that has been very interesting because the you know, neurocell cells, they go through this really complex route to reach the final destinations and uh, colonize you know, all, all different kinds of tissues and organs. In order to understand what signals neural crest cells to migrate, Simois Costa and colleagues investigated what genes are expressed at that time. They found that some of the genes expressed by the neural crest cells are related to glycolysis. Unlike most cells that use oxygen in a metabolic process called respiration to break down sugars, the neural crest cells appeared to use glycolysis, a process that does not use oxygen. This behavior resembles that of metastatic cancer cells. 
It turns out that cancer cells have been shown to generate energy by breaking down glucose using glycolysis. I asked Dr. Simois Costa to explain what they observed in the neural crest cells. By isolating neural crest cells at different stages of migration and characterizing the genes that are on in the cells, we're able to see that a lot of the enzymes that uh, drive this process of glycolysis were expressed at very high levels, something that resembled what was observed uh, in, in cancer cells. Debbie, as, as she was going through these data sets, um, she observed this phenomenon, and then we became really interested in seeing if the metabolism of neuroquest cells was similar to the metabolism of cancer cells, which um, turned out to be the case. Does this metabolism get turned on before the neural crest cells start to migrate, or is it on after they start to migrate? Yeah, the, the interesting thing is that the, this metabolic transition starts to take place before the cells become migratory, right? So that led us to study the mechanisms that link this metabolic reprogramming with the behavior of the cells. And what we're able to show is that you need this transition to high glycolysis for the cells to be able to become invasive and, and, and to migrate throughout the embryo. I wondered how they were able to prove that genes for glycolysis were important for the neural crest cells to get activated to undergo migration. No, so to perform these experiments, uh, we can actually use chemical inhibitors that prevent that, that, you know, those high levels of glycolysis. Uh, so when we do this, when we treat the cells with these chemicals, um, we observe that the cells are unable to move. They are still alive and they're still able to produce energy, enough energy to, to sustain cellular processes, but uh, they don't move as much as uh, what the, the cells normally do. Uh, so that really showed to us that the metabolic reprogramming was important for cell invasion uh, and for cell motility in the embryo. When the cells were not able to migrate, were they showing signs of differentiating or did that not occur? So we didn't see changes in cell potential uh, at first. And I think this is also because cell potential is somehow linked to cell behavior. You know, the cells need to reach their destinations to differentiate. So uh, it was more about the behavior of the cells uh, and the fact that it seems like you need these high levels of glycolysis for the cells to then travel you know, to this far destinations in the embryo. I'm just curious, you know, if you could talk about some of the signals that um, the neural crest cells might be getting that tell them to turn on these genes that are important for glycolysis. There is, so neural crest cells are very much in tune with the environment, right? So they are sensing the molecules that are around them. So these molecules tell them where they need to go as they migrate, right? Tell them if they need to differentiate into a neuron or a muscle cell. Uh, in this case, we find that there are molecules around them in the central nervous system that activates uh, this metabolic program that's very much um, different you know, that, than what you see in adult cells. And, and so those signals lead to this metabolic reprogramming and also you know, therefore make them to become more uh, migratory and, and more invasive. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm speaking with Dr. Marcos Simois Costa, a developmental biologist in the Cornell Department of Molecular Biology and Genetics. 
We're talking about his lab studies of the movement of neural crest cells during the development of the chicken embryo. Simois Costa and colleagues found that neural crest cells express genes involved in glucose metabolism before they migrate in the embryo. This gene expression is very similar to that of metastatic cancer cells. So, I asked Dr. Simois Costa to talk about how neural crest cells behave during development and why they might act like cancer cells. The cells have to become invasive and they have to move around the embryo so that they can contribute to the different tissues and organs, right? And of course, you don't want this to happen in adult cells, uh, which is what we observe in cancer. So that led to this very interesting comparisons between what we see in cancer and in the development. And, you know, led us to explore this idea that what is happening in cancer is actually uh, that the cells are uh, abnormally reactivating processes that should be silenced and should only take place during development. In the um, neural crest cells that you study, can you see gene expression get turned off when they arrive at the place in the embryo where they're just going to stay for the rest of the development? That's exactly what we observe as, as the cells reach their destinations. We see that their metabolism changes to an aerobic metabolism, right? So they start to behave like the other cells of the body and they also stop, stop migrating, right? And, and the genes that are responsible for those behaviors are also silenced. So at this moment in time, we're, we're trying to uh, understand this process a lot better, right? What are the uh, triggers that make the cells stop migrating, that makes their metabolism go back to normal? Because then if we understand that process, we can maybe apply that for uh, future therapies uh, for cancer. I asked why these findings are important for furthering the understanding of both developmental biology and cancer cell biology. Well, I think it changes how we see um, metastasis and, and cancer a little bit, right? So I think there's this idea that a lot of these processes in cancer are um, abnormal, are completely dysregulated, uh, and that the cell is completely out of control. And uh, I think our results show that that's really not the case. And what's happening here is that the cell is, is actually reverting back to a younger state, right? And, and reactivating behaviors that are very important uh, for the formation of the embryo. So all these mechanisms have to be silenced uh, once the cell differentiate. But I think during uh, you know, cancer initiation, you have then uh, this reactivation of these processes. Uh, that take place earlier in the life of that cell. I wondered what might be triggering normal cells to become cancerous. What I've, we've been studying and what a number of studies in the field of cancer biology show is that uh, the, you know, the process of tumorigenesis involves the cells reactivating uh, an embryonic progenitor-like identity, right? So the cells that were initially differentiated become more like embryonic cells and what we think is happening is that when this takes place, uh, the cells also reactivate these migratory behaviors that are so common uh, as, the, our, you know, as our bodies are being formed. Yeah, so this is thought to come from you know, mutations that happen from different behaviors or, or different environmental factors that you know, everyone is exposed to. Uh, and I think those mutations then result in uh, you know, regulatory changes in the cell that facilitate 
the reactivation of these embryonic mechanisms, right? Leading to then uh, these behaviors that should be confined to development. To conclude, I asked Dr. Simois Costa how his research group is planning to further examine the similarities between embryonic development and cancer. We're trying to understand how those mutations that lead to, to cancer are then linked to this metabolic reprogramming, right, and the activation of these uh, developmental programs in cancer cells. We're also doing, I think, very, um, in my view at least, very exciting experiments in which we actually inject cancer cells into the embryo. And it's very interesting to observe that the cells behave exactly like neurocrest cells. You know, they migrate alongside each other. And we uh, also observe that the cells even undergo a process that's similar to differentiation, right? So they stop migrating with neurocrest cells and um, they uh, stop proliferating and, and adopt a different phenotype. Uh, so if we can understand what's driving these changes uh, in, within the embryo, maybe we can hijack some of those mechanisms uh, to treat cancer. Again, I thank Dr. Marcos Simois Costa, the Nancy and Peter Meinig family investigator in the life sciences in the Cornell Department of Molecular Biology and Genetics. We'll have links to references about his studies on our website. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Locally Sourced Science. In today's episode, you heard Esther Rakusin interview Dr. Ming-Ming Wu and Dr. C. Moise Costa, both professors at Cornell University studying cancer cells. I, Liz Mahood, was your host. We thank Joe Lewis for the introduction and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. If you'd like to learn more about what you heard on the show today, or listen to archive episodes or download our podcast, head to our website at www.locallysourcescience.org.